Today, I want to take you into two key passages in the Bible. Both of the passages will be found in the New Testament. I want to take you to two key passages that speak of the theme of God building up his people for mission and for worship. You will notice on your outline those, those two key passages. They're there at the top of the outline. 1 Peter chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 16. You'll also notice on the outline the title of my sermon this morning, He Will Build. He Will Build. This comes from the lips of Jesus, a saying in Matthew chapter 16 that the historical Jesus is recorded as saying. He emphatically says, I will build my church. And that is the inspiration for today's sermon titled, He Will Build. Before we get into Matthew chapter 16, we're going to begin with 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you would turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, we are going to see Peter in 1 Peter 1 and 2 uh, say some things about this image of, of God building. And then we are going to see in Matthew 16 uh, this promise of Jesus that he will build the church. I, I'm particularly drawn to these passages uh, not in abstract, uh, and, and it should go without saying that uh, as a pastor in the church and when it comes to preaching the Word of God, we don't preach it in abstract. We preach the Word of God to the people of God who are gathered in the church where we pastor. So when I'm praying, when Pastor Tony's praying, when other men in this church who are uh, training and preaching are, are praying and thinking about what to preach in the pulpit, of course we know we're going to preach God's Word, of course, we're going to take a text of Scripture and exposit the text of Scripture. But of the 66 books that are in the Bible, and on any given Sunday, what's going on in the life of the church, uh, we, we want to keep a, a pulse on things and, and preach things that are specific to the congregation. This morning's message has that intent. Uh, I want to remind Delray Church congregation specifically that he will build his church. And I say this because in recent months, uh, just pastorally with people around the church, our staff in particular and leaders of various ministries, I, I've, I've sensed in folks, uh, and, and I'll, I'll be candid, I can feel it myself as well, a kind of discouragement. Uh, Pre-COVID, we had two uh, worship services. We had a building campaign. We were raising hundreds of thousands of dollars. There was great excitement around the church, you know, of what God was doing, and in the process of the pandemic, uh, the politicization of the pandemic, uh, the, uh, other rumblings going on in the culture around race and politics and people dividing over these things, and even God's people dividing over these things, and churches being impacted by this, uh, at the end of it, we, we come out of it, and we're about half the size that we were, and we're down to one worship service. And folks will say, you know, what happened? And, what, what is God doing, and where, where is he taking us? And, and some are feeling discouraged, and giving is massively behind right now. We're like 40K in the hole, and we're trying to shave things, and pay cuts are coming, and, oh, and there's a sense of discouragement. And I thought, you know what? We need to be reminded as a church of who's in control. We need to be reminded as a church that he will build his church. We need to be reminded of who we are, and and, and, and who he is and, and, and what he is doing uh, through, throughout all of it. Some, you know, crazy days. I see our director, Clara, in the back. You know, we're like, are we going to be able to keep the school open? You know, what's going to happen? We're, we're praying and praying and praying, and uh, the Lord carried us through, and the school's still going, and uh, things are still happening, and we're in this process of trying to you know, as folks would say, reopen, but we remind everyone we never closed. We've always been uh, meeting and worshiping. We were in the, the parking lot, you know, this time a year ago and just adapting to it. But nevertheless, it, it, things happen and congregations get hit. But we need to be reminded that God is on the throne and he will build his church. So before we get to Jesus in Matthew 16 and this great promise that he says, I will build my church, Let's begin with 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll start, and then I'll point some things in chapter 1 to you. These texts of 1 Peter and Matthew 16 fit together lovely because, because one, the historic Peter who wrote 1 Peter was there in the presence of Jesus in Matthew 16 when Jesus said, I will build my church. In fact, Peter has a special connection to this promise, which we will see in today's message. And so it, it, is, it is fitting to see these passages next to each other. 
1 Peter and Matthew 16, and they both have this wonderful image that reminds us of what we are, specifically this image of a, of a building that we're going to see in 1 Peter 2 and also in Matthew 16. And so we'll begin on your outline with the building in worship, and let's start here with 1 Peter chapter 2. Draw your eyes at verse 2 of chapter 2. Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word so that you may grow in respect to salvation. If you have tasted of the kindness of the Lord and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into this marvelous light. Notice here that Peter describes Jesus' followers, his disciples, as, as these stones. The imagery here is of a building. The imagery is not just of a generic building, but it, it, it has the texture of the holy temple. Notice that the stones in the text are said not to be dead, but they are said to be alive. In, in fact, speaking of stones in life, uh, Peter mixes metaphors in, in the way that he begins the text. Before he gets into this stone imagery, the metaphor of, of the people of God as the temple of God, he uses imagery of childbirth. Look at verse 2, like newborn babes. You see the imagery there of, of birth, of of giving birth. And so here Peter ties the word and growing in salvation. Like newborn babes, what is the pure milk that a baby needs? Uh, so too we need the word. And it is the word that grows us in respect to salvation. This is why we, we gather to hear the word. This is why we place primacy on the preaching of God's word. We devote a, a significant amount of time of, of our worship service to, to hearing the word because the word has the power for the growth of the believer in respect to salvation. And, and, and the believer has been given this gift of, of new birth. God is the one who is in control of salvation. He is the one who is sovereign over his church. The scripture tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You see, it is Christ in his word that gives life. Uh, Christ in his word that gives life, which is what we rely on as a church. When Folks say, you know, how is the church to grow? Maybe we need, you know, marketing or new paint or new programs. Or, no, no, we need the Word because the Word is what brings life. And, 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 and we need the Word because the Word is what sanctifies God's people. A, a, a baby does nothing to, to, to earn life. A baby didn't exist before it was brought into existence. You, you see, being brought into existence is itself a gift. And so the metaphor is fitting that we are newborn babies. He reminds them, your salvation was the work of God. It was not your own. Life is a gift. Like newborn babies, crave the pure milk of the word. You've got chapter 2 in front of you. Turn back to chapter 1. Draw your eyes at 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. You see the language there? It's... Him who has caused us to be born again. And, and in that new birth, we have this living hope, verse 3 says, doesn't it? Through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. You see, he's overcome the grave. You see, he's the one who gives us life. You see this language of new birth in 1 Peter 1, 3. This newborn baby in 1 Peter 2, 3. Like newborn babies, we, we've been given life. Jesus emphatically said this in John chapter 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We're, we're born into this world fallen. Our father Adam has, has, has passed that on to us. Behold, there is one who has come who is the seed of Adam, 
and the seed of Abram, and the seed of David, who has reversed what Adam has done. He has brought new life, and that new life comes by grace. It is the gift of God that no man may boast. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Look at verse 23 in the first chapter. You have not been born, you have, excuse me, you have been born not of the seed which is perishable. You're, you, you're not born with a, with a perishable seed. What does he say in verse 23? But an imperishable seed. That is through the living and enduring word of God. The word breathes life. The word is what God has ordained to, to bring new life. And so we rest in that. And while it might seem foolishness to the world, my, um, while it might seem foolishness to uh, those who are involved in, you know, slick marketing campaigns, or no, we preach the word, the enduring word, the imperishable word, the word that brings life. Look at verse 24 of 1 Peter 1. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. The word brings life. The word, the word is what we rely on for the building up of this, of this temple, these, these living stones that we are. And faith comes by hearing. The word bringing life through that proclamation. And so it is fitting to describe the church as a building that is made up of bricks that are alive, for we have been given life. The bricks and the stones are not dead, they're living. And their life comes from the cornerstone, 1 Peter 2 is, is showing us. In masonry, the first stone that is laid in the construction of a building is the cornerstone, and it holds everything together from the outside corner of the building, bringing together the weight-bearing, intersecting masonry walls. It, the, the cornerstone is what you start with. The cornerstone holds it all together. The bricks of those walls are supported by the foundation of the cornerstone. In this case, the cornerstone is Christ, and he animates. That is to say, he gives life to the stones that are in the building. We are alive because he is alive. We are alive living stones because our cornerstone is alive. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, the Apostle Paul uses this imagery According to the grace of God that was given me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Paul describes the work of the church and, and, and the work of ministry as building and building upon the foundation of Christ. Everything rests on that foundation. Peter describes Christ, again, as this cornerstone. Everything is strengthened and holds together by the cornerstone. With this imagery, Peter speaks of the church, this building. And, and, and this building, the temple, has a priesthood to it. And Peter also uses this language of priesthood. Uh, none other than the royal priesthood, he says. You see, the priests of the old served in the temple, this holy building, this porthole of the heavens to the earth where God's glory manifests, where where the images of sacrifice and the shadows of sacrifice point to the ultimate sacrifice, that sacrifice that has come, that temple that, that was, whose veil was rend in two at the, at the cross of Calvary, that, that, that temple that, that in the first century would no longer be standing, that discouragement to that Jewish community to have their holy temple knocked over by oppressive political and military powers, and for that early Jewish community following after their Jewish Messiah to be told, you are the temple in this age. Man has, not, man has not overcome the temple. You have become the temple. This brings us to the first point in, 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 that you'll see on your outline there, the, the building in worship, church, and service. Peter describes them as uh, living stones, as a, as a temple. He describes them as priests in that temple. He describes this service of, of praise. The church exists as a spiritual building of, of worship. Mind you, the church is not an actual building. This is a metaphor. I say this because as a kid, I was taught otherwise. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open it up. Here's the people. No, no, no. That, that, that's theologically wrongheaded. Here's the building. Here's the steeple. Open it up. Here's the church. The church is the, 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 the people. Uh, the, the, the people not in abstract, but the people who are locally gathered under local shepherds to, to hear the word, to, to, to receive the ordinances uh, that are passed on by Christ, communion and baptism. Delray Church is a proper New Testament church. You are living stones in this specific church. 
This is why we gather. This is why we place the primacy on, on gathering. It, it is not enough to drive in the car and listen to Christian sermons or to catch online feeds or to, you know, oh, you know, uh, get, no, 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 you must be in a locally gathered church. Peter's talking in this letter to specific congregations. You are the living stones. And, and, and we are being held together and animated with life from the risen one who conquered the grave and gives life to dead sinners. And, and, and he does so by his grace and for his praise. Peter's imagery is of great comfort to the church. By way of context, this book is a letter that is, that is written to Christians who were persecuted, to Christians who were dispersed in, in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. If you look at chapter 1, verse 1, you see this. You, you see he's writing to these congregations. He's writing to congregations that are, are in what we would modern-day Turkey, and, and they are going through a hard time. Many had lost loved ones. Many had lost their churches. Many were discouraged. They are suffering. And so Peter writes a lot about suffering in, the, in this letter, and he reminds them that their suffering is not vain, and further, that Christ will not stop building his church. He's not going to stop. What, whatever has come, if numbers dip, if people die, if this happens, if that happens, if people act like the world and divide like the world and what have you, keep your eyes on Christ. He will build his church. In, in modern parallels, I can imagine our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine reading First Peter and finding great hope and power for, from it. For they too suffer. For they too are losing loved ones. They are losing their congregations. I saw an article in the BBC that, uh, as it's scrolling it, it's just picture after picture after picture of bombed churches. You, you, know, you, know, you imagine coming in on a Sunday morning and seeing just you know, big old holes through, through the building in which the true church gathers, and, 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 and seeing friends who've lost loved ones in the crosshairs of war and going through a time of persecution. That's the context of Peter. Albeit before the technology of bombs, people are dying with swords and fires and dying on crosses. Peter himself would be hung on a cross, upside down to boot. Uh, I mean, horrible, sadistic, dark. And so Peter writes to them and he says, hey, look, let me encourage you. You are the building." You are the temple of God. You have life by the cornerstone. We have no idea in North America. Our struggles uh, compare you know, nothing to what believers are, are, are facing in many places of the world. Under, under horrible, corrupt governments that kill their own people, churches that are in the underground. Yet at the same time, we can take comfort. Uh, many of you are persecuted for your faith. You, you have your families turned on its head. You have uh, friends and loved ones, people close to you who, who take digs at you and do mean things to you because of your faith. We, we, we suffer. Sure, we suffer. As I said in the beginning, you know, churches have been rocked in this cultural and political war that we faced in the last uh, few years around race and racism and COVID and this and that. Uh, and, and it's certainly not over. The divides are just beginning. And the sad part with Rona and riots and race stuff is that in times past, when, when our culture went through things like this, churches filled up. I think about 9-11 and how the church pulled together and how churches filled up to the brim. Uh, I read an article this week, and I'll quote from it. In times of crisis, such as the COVID-19 pandemic, one might expect that more people would turn to religion, given uh, 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 death and fear and isolation that the pandemic generated, According to collected data, though, in 2020, Barna Group, one in three practicing Christians dropped out of church completely during COVID-19. Last June, the AP broke a story of many houses of worship in the U.S. that were, were shut down forever from the pandemic. What's worse, church membership in the United States dropped below 50% for the first time, according to Gallup data that goes back to 1940. Churches in North America are losing ground. And what I, what I see, what I see, and what limited samplings of, of data that I have, is that many churches are pointing the finger at the world like it's the world's fault. Like it's, you know, it's, it's those guys. You know, it's, it's Newsom, it's Fauci, or whoever's on the other side. It's CNN, it's Fox, it's this, it's this, it's them, it's them, it's them. It's all their fault. 
But what I hear in the Word of God is a much different message. The responsibility rests on us. Look at verse 9 again. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. It rests on us to be those who herald Him. It rests on us to, to be the priesthood. What is the priesthood? The priesthood is the mediator that stands between fueling parties and feuding parties and, and pulls them together. In the culture, we've got a lot of feuds. We've got a lot of divides. But none of those divides compare to the great divide that is between humanity and their God, whether they'll acknowledge Him as their God or not. We stand with a chasm between us and a holy God because of our sin. He cannot allow sin in His presence. That's how holy and perfect He is. And yet He is loving and He is merciful. And so He has ordained to have a priesthood throughout the ages that serves in the ministry of reconciliation, bringing humanity back to Him. And that is our responsibility, brothers and sisters, more than a responsibility. That is our joy. That is our honor. That is our everything. Look, he reminds us of, of, of why we should have this disposition, because he called us out of the darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. Be reminded of where you have come from. Be reminded of the one who has rescued you. Hear the words of your Savior in Matthew 5 who said, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they set it on a stand and it gives light to everyone. We've been rescued from the darkness, made into His light, a light that is to shine. Uh, as well, we have been saved and we have been called not only to shine, but to suffer. He has ordained suffering for His people. Our Lord suffered. We are His disciples. Why would we expect that we're going to get through life without sacrifice and suffering? And Jesus reminded us uh, in, his, in His teachings throughout the Gospels of this very thing, that, that we would suffer. He kept reminding his disciples, you're going to suffer, you're going to suffer. And he reminded them in those reminders of the reason why, and it was this, to quote from John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. You see, the, the, the problem isn't with you, it's, it's ultimately with him. The, the, the problem that the church will face isn't because of the church, it's because of the Christ of the church. Now often you'll hear people say things like, well, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. Uh, but you always want to press on that and say, tell me more about the Jesus you love. And I submit to you that 9.5 times out of 10, the Jesus that they love is not the Jesus of reality, the Jesus of history. It is a figment of their imagination, Jesus. And this is not to, this is not to excuse the legitimate observation that is made by the world often that, the, you know, I like Jesus but not the church because they've seen a lot of hypocrisy in the church. And so they go, I don't want to go there because they're as divided as the rest of the world. They're as difficult and dysfunctional as the rest of the world to which we take ownership in and we cry out to God, oh, oh God, create in us a clean heart. Verse 7 of Peter reminds us what Jesus said in John 15. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Look at verse 7 of chapter 2. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were appointed. It's the cornerstone that they're stumbling on. Not, not you, it's the cornerstone. It is the cornerstone that will bring a, a conflict, that will bring suffering, that will bring opposition to, to the world. As we stand in the word, that opposition is going to come because the world kicks against the word, because the world kicks against him. And so we are going to feel it. We, we are the temple. If, if, if you're in a building and someone starts whacking that cornerstone, the rest of the building is going to feel it. And, 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 and you look at this text and you see Peter wants to encourage them. I know you're feeling it. I know it's hard. I know you're discouraged. I know you're looking around. I know people have left. I know people have died. I, I know you're wondering... What is God doing in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Bithynia? Let me tell you what he's doing. You are the priesthood. You are the priesthood. And remember the job of the priest is to mediate. And remember the great chasm. On the other side of the holy God are people in sin and darkness. And they are going to kick against you. In verse 7, Peter references Psalm 118, verse 22. In verse 8, he cites Isaiah 8, verses 14 and 15 to explain the world's rejection of Jesus. Uh, well, 
the true Jesus. Again, not just any old Jesus, but the true Jesus. There are, as I noted, Jesuses that the world likes, and that brings us to the next point on the outline. We move from the church and service to confusion and speculation. Confusion about Jesus always seems to stem from people's preconceived notions about God and spirituality and concepts of salvation. This was true when Peter was alive and writing this letter, and it's still true today. In Peter's life, Jesus was rejected because of preconceived notions and uh, about the Messiah, uh, you know, and ultimately they, they, they were confused not so much because of their own preconceived notions, but their precondition of sin and the blinding effects of sin. People thought of salvation at the time of Jesus in more physical and political senses rather than moral and, 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 and in the sense of the soul needing to be born again, like newborn babe language that, that Peter picks up and Jesus preaches on. They wanted salvation from the oppressive government of Rome. And their expectation was that the God of Israel would send a Messiah who would, who would overthrow that Roman power. The Messiah would be military. He would get physical. Uh, he, he would be more institutionally connected so that he could also get political. He'd, he'd schmooze the, you know, the big guys. He, he'd, he'd get a lot of followers on, on the Twitter and this and that. You know, he'd, he'd, he'd know everybody. You'd see him in, you know, in those upper echelons, you see. And by his genius and by his brawn, he would save. But Jesus, the true Messiah, came not in power. Rather, he came in humility. Not to conquer, but to be rejected. Not to overthrow, but to be trampled upon. And in being trampled on and, and being rejected and, and humble and, and low, he saves. He saves. You see, for, for and by and through his humble and holy life and, and through his substitutionary death, he was a sacrifice for us. And that would bring salvation to all who come and repent of their sin and believe in him. To believe in Jesus is to see Jesus for who he is. He's God the Son in the flesh. And to embrace him as the Savior of all. We move on the outline from church and service, confusion and speculation, to Christ and salvation. L listen, I I'm, I'm not just proclaiming this. I'm inviting you to this this morning. To see God. To see the Son of the Father of the heavens who has come to the earth. The Son, the historic Jesus of Nazareth, who existed before he was born. For before he was conceived, you see, he is the creator of the universe, God. The God of creation, who is Father, Son, and Spirit. The historic Jesus is the Son. The God who is, is three persons. Jesus of history is one of those persons. The Son, the eternal Son of heaven, sent by the Father in the power of the Spirit to rescue humanity. And to rescue humanity from the penalty of our sin to rescue humanity from the punishment that comes our way, not just in death, but in the afterlife, to atone for the, the sins of a willful rebellion of humanity against God, he has come. And as God, he can extend forgiveness. That is his prerogative. In becoming a man, he can serve as a substitute for sinners, and he can take the wrath of God on his back as a man dying for sin. Again, what do priests do? They mediate. In Christ, we have the chief priest over his over his priesthood of all ages. And in him we have the ultimate mediation. Humanity at odds with God. In him you have God and man. He's fully God and fully man, reconciling, reconciling humanity to God. The wages of sin is death, so he dies. But he conquers death as God, rising from the dead, showing that the pavement is covered. And so then if we confess our sins and repent, the Son will save. And I invite you to do that now. Call on Him and be saved. The invitation to come to Christ is an invitation to love Him for who He is, to accept Him for, for who He is, to appreciate what He has done for you, to embrace the historic Jesus as the eternal Son, the second person of the triune God, enfleshed as a man to save a people for Himself and to empower them to go into the world with this life-saving message. We at Delray Church, we are a part of this people and this program. We are His temple, and He has promised to grow us and to use us for His work. That said, let's move from 1 Peter over to the Gospel of Matthew, and let's learn more about this work and, and, and the build of this building and this temple metaphor. We will learn more as we turn to Matthew 16, and we look at the builder of this building. So we move from the outline from the building in worship to the builder at work. Find your way to the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. 
This, the Gospel of Matthew, is a piece of history from the first century. This, the Gospel of Matthew, is a, is a document in the sands of time that concerns the historical Jesus of Nazareth, who came to offer the kingdom of God to a world that would reject that kingdom and him the king. Ultimately, this was God's plan, to use the rejection of the king to bring salvation in the midst of opposition, to save a people for himself, and to train that people as disciples. A disciple is one who is an apprentice, one who learns. If you want to learn a craft or a trade or a profession, you, you must uh, a disciple, you must apprentice. And so he, he came to be rejected. He came to make disciples. Those disciples apprenticed under him. They learned from him. They, they listened to his teachings. They watched his life. They emulated him. And he commissioned them to go to the ends of the earth. And as he made disciples, to continue making disciples. And that's what we're continuing to this very day. To the ends of the earth. To make disciples. To wait for our king to come. Now you've turned to Matthew 16 by now, hopefully. If you draw your eyes at verse 24 in the text. Look at verse 24 in the text. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? He's pressing it. Your soul is in the balance. Your soul that has been stained by sin must be cleansed. You must have mediation. You can't get from here, fallen humanity, to here, holy God, on your own. You, you must have redemption. See the invitation of the Son. See the life that He is offering. See, He describes it as laying down your own life in this invitation. This isn't a simple, you know, check the Jesus box on the religion test. This is a surrendering of your whole life. When I made the invitation a moment ago for you to come to Him, to, to repent, to cling to Him, to believe in Him, this is an invitation to let go of your life. And if when I made that invitation a moment ago, you thought, man, eh, maybe later. No, 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 now, now. You, you can come. You still can come. You have nothing to lose but yourself and the empty profits of this world that will not last. You can't take your stuff with you. I saw a meme. I, I, I told myself I was going to put it in the PowerPoint. It was a hearse uh, with a U-Haul attached to the back of it, you know. And the tag was something like, see, you can take it with you, you know. It's like, you, you can't. You, there's, there's, you're, there's no U-Haul storage in, 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 in the afterlife for you. You lose your life, you let go, and you receive something that is even greater than your own life. It's the life of the cornerstone. Before calling you to this place of letting go, Jesus wanted to make sure that they knew who they were letting it go for. It is not enough to say, I believe in Jesus. You must believe in the Jesus who is. So for context, in this chapter, go back to verse 13 and see the question that Jesus is asking. Look at verse 13. He's asking, who do people say the Son of Man is? Who am I? The Son of Man is Jesus' favorite self-designation for himself in the Gospel. It's the most frequent title that's ascribed to him. The Son of Man in the Hebrew Bible is a figure in prophecy, most notably in the prophet Daniel, the Son of Man is this divine figure who comes from heaven to the earth. Jesus is pressing his divinity. Do you know who I am? Again, this is important, for it is not enough to say, I believe in Jesus. You must believe in the Jesus who is. You must further, because even the demons believe in the Jesus who is, but they haven't surrendered to him. You must surrender to him. You must let go of your life. And I say this because we live in a climate where you know, people can ascribe to things, but they don't actually do it. Uh, you can have a gym membership and actually never go. You, you can have uh, not only no action in it, but you can have wrong ideas in your head about this. And so we live in a climate, no doubt, where the English word Jesus has entirely different meanings. There's lots of different Jesuses in our culture. People use the word God as well, and they have entirely different gods in mind when they talk about God. And so, so we want to qualify this. They'll even use the same Bible. We're, we're, this nation is filled with cults who will use the Bible and twist and distort who God is. They're taking texts to say God is something that he is not, or Christ is something that he is not. And so it's important to always pause and say, who is he? 
That's what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 16. Who do they say I am? You see, words matter, and more importantly is the meaning that is ascribed to the words, and in this case, Jesus and God. You may use the words, but what is the meaning that you have in mind? You may use the words, but more importantly, do you know the one that you are speaking about personally? In Scripture, God has superintended the words on the page, and in them, He is screaming out to us, this is who I am, this is what I have done, and He is asking you, will you come? Will you turn? Will you let go of your life? Will you repent? Will you receive forgiveness of sins? Will you forsake it all? For I truly am God, Christ says. In verse 13, we see Jesus asking because there was confusion, so we move on the outline to this point, the builder at work, A, on your outline, people's confusion of the Christ. Draw your eyes at the text, verse 13. Jesus comes to the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he is asking, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Notice in verse 13, it specifies where he is located when he asks this question, and it's significant. Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi. Now, why does Matthew specify this? This is a very significant place. Uh, it is, it's so significant that if you have the privilege of going to Israel, you, you have to go there. You have to spend out. It's a significant place. Uh, so, some of you have been there. Lu Lucy was there. The Jernigans were there. A couple others in the house. I think I saw Chad. You know, they've been there. This is a significant place. And you, you might even, you can close your eyes if you've been there and you can begin to see it. What's significant about it? Caesarea Philippi is a crazy, dark place. It's a, it's, it's a lot like Los Angeles in, in many ways. And, and I say this because in the narratives of Scripture, Jesus goes to the crazy, dark cities. He goes to urban hubs and, and doesn't run from them. He goes straight into them, and he builds his church in them. Uh, speaking of Los Angeles, this weekend, 30 years ago, 30 years ago this weekend, our city was engulfed in flames. The historic L.A. riots began on April 29, 1992. They lasted for six days. 30 years ago, we, we were in the midst of, of just six, six days of, uh, of, of upheaval, uh, uh, confusion, and the scars of it are, are, are still with us. So they're still with us. One of the, one of the rumblings of the L.A. riots uh, was a girl, Natasha Harlan, who was, was shot, was shot in, uh, with, over some orange juice that allegedly she was trying to steal. In the back of the head, shot in a, in a store. And we all saw it on TV. Uh, and for me, personally, I knew her. I went to school with her. We are at the same, same age. We all knew her. That's Natasha from school. And you see her die on TV. And, and we saw that go to court. And, and, and we saw, you know, not guilty. And, and there's all these rumblings and hurts that are in the city that go back into history. And boom, the city and chaos and confusion and all the rest. It, it, it makes living in a place like Los Angeles, a, a, a place filled with scars and hurts, such a pivotal place for Christ's church to carry the message of reconciliation. It's a key city for us to be in. And so any discouragement that we might have with regard to what's taken place in the last few years and numbers diminishing, we need to hear Christ, I'll build my church. We need to see Christ. He goes, Oh, he goes right into the throes of the places of, of darkness, into the places of hurt, and the places of chaos. Caesarea Philippi was a hard place. It was not the place for raising a family. It was, it was pagan. The taxes were high. The schools were bad. Uh, the real estate was expensive. The per perversion was extensive. The racism was prevalent. The violent was ramp rampant. Uh, it's located at the base of a huge rock which is important to our interpretation of the text this morning. Here, let me give you a picture of Caesarea. Look, look at this, because you've you got you to see it so that when you're reading the text, it, it really pops for you. The big rock on the mountain had this shrine that was dedicated to the Greek god Pan, Panios. The surrounding region was known as the Panion. In the Old Testament, it was the center of Baal worship. When you think of Jezebel, you think of this location, if you know your Hebrew Bible. Historically, the worship of the Baal was replaced with the worship of Pan and numerous Greek fertility gods. The picture here of the big rock cliff is referred to as the rock of the gods because of the pagan shrines that are there in the cliff. I'll remind you of this picture later, so, but, but I want you to have it in mind now. Caesarea Philippi is a rock of pagan gods, the Panion. 
And when the Romans jacked everything, uh, Herod Philip renamed it after himself, hence it's called Caesarea Philippi. But keep in mind that, that, that these rulers were divine figures in the pagan world as well. This is arguably the most pagan place in all of the land of Israel, where the greatest confusion about God would be found. And here it is that Jesus pops the question, who do you say I am? And see their confusion, verse 14. Well, Jesus, uh, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or maybe one of the prophets. Say what? This shows you the syncretism and the spiritualism, how it had infected uh, the Hebrew religion at the day. Now, now you're doing weirdo reincarnation stuff? You think I'm some reincarnated prophet? Show me that anywhere inside of the Hebrew Bible. Have you lost your mind? Who, who is Jesus? Everyone's saying his name. Who is Jesus? You, you see, you cannot lose your life if you don't know who you're losing it for, who the person is. Jesus invites his followers to lose their lives in salvation and to have fullness and joy and rest in him. But you've got to know who he is. You've got to know who he is. And these are the guys that are closest to him. And he asks them very pointedly, verse 15, but who do you say I am? Forget about what the other people are saying. Guys, let's get personal. What do you believe? Jesus knows there is confusion. He knows the chaos of the world will inevitably find its way into the community of the people of God. Who do you, you guys, who do you say I am? He's been teaching them about who he is. And yet they have this spiritual learning disability, we might say. They don't understand. And they never would apart from the grace of God because it's actually more than a disability. It is spiritual death that clouds our minds from seeing. We see the confusion and next we see the confession a confession that is born in the graces of God. Listen to one of the disciples, Peter, the guy who wrote the book that we started with, 1 Peter. Listen to how Peter responds to the question. We move on our outline from the people's confusion to Peter's confession. Look at verse 16. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter calls him the Son of God. He specifies the living God. You know, in, in, in temples in this area around the Panion, the Roman emperor was actually honored as the son of God. They, they called the Roman emperor the son of God. Jesus is thus being acknowledged as an emperor would, but you see he adds the description, the living God, to it. Lots of people using the word God, lots of people using the word son. And so Peter, look, we got to get specific of what terms mean here. So let me specify the son of the living God. And even more specific, he ties his divinity to his messianic prophetic status. For Jesus is called, on the mouth of Peter, the Christ. The word Christ means Messiah, Mashiach. Christ means anointed one. The, the one who is expected to come and, and bring the very kingdom of God. You are, are him. You're not an incarnated prophet. You are the one fulfilling prophecy. You are him. If you were reading the Gospel of Matthew straight through, and you started in chapter 1, verse 1, and you got all the way up here to chapter 16, verse 16, you, you, you would pause and you'd go, wow, this is quite the moment in this story. You see, because no, no one before this moment had said this of him. And yet many had been challenging this, including the devil and demons who, who had identified Jesus Christ as, as such, as the Son of God as the Messiah, which of course is ironic because even the demons get it, even the darkness gets it, what the light does not. And so far, the only people, if you're reading from the beginning of the book all the way up to this moment, the only people who were coming to faith in Jesus were outsiders, the Gentile centurion, the Canaanite woman. And now we, we see a reception on the inside. Peter gets it, but hold up, wait. Peter gets it, not because Peter gets it, but rather because God has graciously revealed it. Verse 17, Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is an encouragement to us because it, 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 it means that faith and the work of the church isn't to be done by, 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 uh, by flesh and by blood. It's not our doing. We can't save anyone. It is him who saves. The numbers, the growth, the, all of that is on him. Peter's confession is not his own. He did not realize it. No, it wasn't a realization. It was a revelation. 
Jesus said, blessed are you. Recall that the word blessed, makarios. Recall that that word makarios, as Jesus used it in the Sermon on the Mount, was the one who was the recipient of God's favor. The blessed man is blessed because of God's favor, God's blessing. God is a sovereign in salvation. We're not saved by, by our own intuitions or our own aha moments or whatever. We're saved by revelation. We're saved by grace. God had been gracious to Peter to reveal himself to that undeserving man. Not only to reveal himself, but to, to make him a disciple. And not just any old disciple, but to become an apostle. To become an apostle. This is very obvious in the next verse. Look at verse 18. And I also say to you, Peter, that upon this rock I will build my church. What a wonderful verse. In it we see the grace of God in taking an unworthy, undeserving fisherman who was, who was so far from God and saving him to become the unique mouthpiece in human history for the Christ Jesus is foreshadowing here in this verse Peter's apostleship, which will be displayed in the book of Acts, which is also manifest in Peter's epistles, as we saw already this morning in 1 Peter 1 and 2. Peter's apostleship is not autonomous. It is tied to churches, which the book of Acts documents recording the birth of the church and its foundational leaders, Peter being one of them. At this point, we are a ways before the history that is recorded in the book of Acts. Hence, the church is still future. Notice that Jesus says it in the future tense. He's going to build his church, future tense. Notice he speaks of the church as future and also the church as foundation. It is Christ's institution. He says, my, my, my church. It belongs to Jesus. It's my church. The modifier my makes the church Christ's church. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter spoke of Christ as the precious cornerstone. We saw in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, no one can lay a foundation other than the one that has been laid. That is Christ Jesus. In fact, uh, uh, Paul also, in Ephesians chapter 2, used the same language, calling Jesus the cornerstone of the church. The apostles, Paul, Peter, etc., they had their apostleship under Christ, the one who chose them to build on his foundation, uniquely as an eyewitness of the risen Lord and pioneers of the church. Peter is the first of the apostles. He had a special place among the twelve in the gospel accounts, driving home the grace of God, for he is depicted in the gospel accounts as presumptuous, as undeserving, he is faithless, he's jumping out of boats, he's missing the point. And later, later in the Gospel of Matthew, in fact, not that much later, we're in chapter 16, just draw your eyes at verse 22 and 23, Peter takes a cue from Satan. Get behind me, Satan. And that's the guy you pick to be the first apostle? That's the guy you pick to build the church? There's another encouragement in days like these where the church has been diminished and divided and what have you. I go, man, if he could build the church on Peter, uh, you, you know, we're going to be all right. You know, we're going to be all right. The word for the church here is ekklesia. It is a Greek word that simply means an assembly, a gathering of people. It is a word that is used in the New Testament to refer broadly to groups that aren't even Christian. Ekklesia just means an organized group of people. Uh, an organized group of people that are doing something. So in the, in the case of believers, we're doing something, we're making disciples. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word ekklesia is used for, for God's people. Jesus doesn't have Israel in mind, for he is speaking of, of something that is not in existence, and Israel was in existence at the time when he said this. Added, Jesus specifies that it is my, that is his own, the eternal son's program. He was introducing something new, to the earth and to his disciples personally. What Paul would call in his writings the mystery, something previously not disclosed in the revelations of God. In fact, even in the gospel narrative, this is the first revelation of the church. I'm going to start something. I'm calling it the ecclesia. A unique program in the people of God founded by Christ. And Jesus says, I will do it. And he goes on to say that he will assure that nothing, not even hell, will stop it. Look at verse 18. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Hades in that era was the realm of the dead. Jesus is saying that death won't stop the church that he is building. Dr. Barbary notes that Jews at the time would understand Hades, um, Hades' gates to refer to physical death. Jesus was thus telling the disciples that his death would not prevent the work of building the church. The church would continue. The church is not going to lose. And, and, and what a place of all places in Philippi to say this. Remember the location. 
We're at Caesarea Philippi. I'll put it back in front of you. There is a cave there on the cliff that I showed you that was a gate to the underworld where the fertility gods that I spoke about, the, the fertility gods lived in this gate. During the winter, the, the pagans would go up to this gate and they would do weird sex orgy stuff and kill humans and offer them as sacrifices here at this place. It was the ancient Planned Parenthood, we might say, where people could get rid of their babies. There was a, a, little, there was a pool of water, and they would throw their babies into the water. And pagans saw the water as a symbol of Hades, the underworld, and they believed that the gods traveled in and out of this water porthole. The pool had a natural vacuum to it, and so whatever you threw in, it would get sucked out. And so they would throw small babies into this pool, they would get sucked into the current, and the rivers below would turn red, which was a sign that the fertility gods were appeased. It is a sign unearthed. In fact, in the sands of time, archaeologists have found, I'll show you, the sign of the grotto at Pan, which describes those disappearing in the waters as a sign of the gods accepting the sacrifice. This is the gate of Hades. This is the gate of Hades. If you ask someone, if you're like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm trying to find the gate of Hades, and you were close to Caesarea, they go, oh, you've got to keep going that way. It's up over there. Carved into the great rock of the gods. Now, you should be connecting some dots here, because Jesus is speak, speaking of building a rock, and he's speaking of the gates of Hades, not overcoming. He's playing on his surroundings, and he's using his surroundings to unpack theology for his disciples conjuring these images of darkness to explain the mission of his church to overcome the darkness in that city. When Jesus brought the disciples to that area, they would have been puzzled, if not scandalized. Why are we going here? This is the red light district. The, the rabbis and the holy people would not even go there. And yet Jesus does not run from the dark city. He claims it as his own. And he is saying to the pagans, he's saying to the Caesars out in the public in, in, in the day, look, 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 I am over all of this. And watch what I'm going to do. The shrines in the caves, those shrines and caves, they are only full of Christians today making pilgrimages to that historic site. The gods, the gods of the rock are dead. They're dead. They never even existed. But the living God is alive, and he decided to speak of the building of his church at that location, it is a sobering reminder for the mission of the church in the city and for our confidence in the face of the darkness that exists in major cities. Pan, Pan, the figure Pan, was this goat-looking fawn-like being known for his sexual powers and his, skill, his skills in music and theater. Strangely, something that often goes together in our culture, that is our, our theater, our movies, our music are loaded with sexual perversion normalizing it and inviting you to join in worship with it. Even Christians fall under the spell, going to worship in movie theaters and concerts and downloads and the rest that, that uplift the darkness and missing the warfare that is at hand. It is interesting to note that in Christian art, back in the day, the devil was depicted with a fawn-like uh, appearance. Hindquarters, legs, horns of a goat. And, and that depiction, albeit today, is like weird cartoon. No, no, plan, death, dying, darkness. This is, this is wicked. And Jesus went there and said, I'm going to build my church, and I got a rock that's going to beat this rock. And the gates of hell won't prevail. Bible commentators have emphasized that the gates are defensive. And so the imagery isn't here of the church being pounded and pounded and pounded, but rather it's of the church triumphant. We are pounding the gates of hell, and we are overcoming. We are beating it down. The underworld, that picture of death and darkness, it's not going to win against us. The darkness is not beating us. We are advancing on it. We, that is, the true church of Christ, facing hardship, facing death, facing suffering, making a huge sacrifice to be in places of darkness. We keep on pressing, and we hear the call of our Lord, I will build my church. This is bigger than us. Any soldier in war understands this. A deployed soldier knows that that deployment may mean death for him or her. It may mean your end, but the mission will still go on. And the mission is just beginning here in human history with these apostles, specifically Peter. And because it starts here, we have this confidence, because the start is not with Peter, but with God and God's choosing of Peter. It is God's doing, and his choice of Peter serves to show us, the church, that it is not resting on the powers of mortals, but on the divine graces and the omnipotence of our God. Jesus gives the keys to Peter 
the one who the Father has called to himself. Look at the text, verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. The Father is saving Peter. Jesus is commissioning Peter as the key leader in this new work of the church that he will build. God is the one who's doing it. In fact, notice the tense and the line. Shall have been. It is a future perfect verb, which means whatever Peter would do, it was because God had determined beforehand to do it. The Father in heaven is the sovereign. Using Peter for the key ministry of his son in the earth, Peter would have a ministry of binding and loosing, not because he had some special ecclesial powers or some sort of a special office that God had given to him, but rather because God would be the one who would bind and loose in heaven and then sovereignly use Peter and the early church to accomplish that unbinding, that unloosing. The terms abiding and loosing were used at the time for uh, jurisprudence in courts, deliberating uh, you know, who's guilty and who's innocent, as well used in rabbinic context for establishing rule and discipline. Further, they were used to denote who had the authority to interpret Torah over a body of people. Peter is thus being given teaching and leadership responsibilities to declare doctrine, discipline sin, and to open the gates of salvation. The keys of the kingdom. Keys give entry. Keys are something of intimacy. Uh, only a few people outside of my family have, have keys to my, my home. It, it, it's trust. It's, it's intimacy. Look at this uh, picture from archaeology of ancient keys at the time. Entry into the kingdom is a metaphor for salvation. Peter gets the keys to open up salvation. How? By preaching Christ crucified, risen from the dead. We see this very clearly in the book of Acts when Peter preaches Christ crucified, risen from the dead. What happens when Peter starts preaching? Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people get saved. When Peter comes to town, what happens? The Holy Spirit pours out on the town. And the Holy Spirit regenerates hearts and seals them into Christ's church. The confession of Peter that Jesus was the Son of the living God is tied to these keys. And it would become the message to bring salvation to the lost. This was not Peter's responsibility alone, for in Matthew 18, we see Jesus referring to the powers of binding and loosing as belonging to the whole congregation, to the church. In this case, Jesus speaks to Peter as the representative of the church, for he was the first disciple who the Father had opened up to say, this is the Christ, to see these things. Nonetheless, the responsibility would not be left to Peter alone. It was given to the church as those who read the Scripture in like manner, following after Jesus, and, 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 and proclaiming him. At Jesus' time, uh, standing there at this rock, this dark place, talking of Peter as the rock, talking about building this church that's going to overcome. This is very, very powerful stuff. And there, there Peter stands. You've got to imagine what's going through his head, like, oh, I get the keys? <laughs> you know, whoa, you know, all right. You know, and, and he's humbled you. You didn't get the keys because you figured it out. This has been revealed from the Father to you. And you're going, okay. All right, I got the keys. Now, I need to pause for a moment. I also need to finish the sermon, but uh, I do need to pause. I'd be remiss not to note. Uh, this is a very popular passage in Scripture that is taken out of context by a movement known as papalism, or more popularly today referred to as Roman Catholicism. They maintain, the papalists do, that, that Peter was the first pope. And that, see, Jesus gives him the, the pope keys here, and then, and then Peter passes the pope keys down to the next pope, and the po next pope takes the keys and passes them down to the next pope, and that pope takes the keys and passes them down to the next pope, all the way up to the pope that we have today. Now, the problem with this is that the Bible never says this. This passage never says this. As scholar D.A. Carson notes, the text says nothing about Peter's successors, infallibility, or exclusive authority. These late interpretations entail insuperable exegetical and historical problems. Jesus speaks to Peter not as an office that he is going to hold or, or some sort of a apostolic succession that goes to individual people who get to hold the keys. No, 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 no. Uh, to boot uh, uh, a successor of Peter who would be in Rome, the ancient church was centered in Jerusalem, and Christ heads his church from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. No one receives the title of, of, of vicar. No, Christ is the vicar. Christ is the pope. Uh, papalists, of course, though, they'll go nuts over this, and P Peter being called the rock. Uh, the Greek word that is used for rock is Petra, and Peter's name in Greek is Petros, and so they, they try to turn this into something. You know, they try to turn this into something. You see, Petros is masculine, and Petra is, is, is feminine. So it could be that the rock on which Jesus is building is not Peter, since Peter is masculine, and Jesus said Petra, which is feminine. 
Because of this, there's a good case to be made that he's building the rock not on Peter, but on his confession, the confession that he made of the Christ, which uh, grammatically would be uh, feminine in that case. Uh, others would point out that, uh, you know, they'll say, well, Petros means loose stone, and so Peter is loose, and Petra may mean bedrock as a short foundation, tying it to Matthew 7, where, where the wise one who builds on the Petra, and, and you, know, you know, that's another way to respond. But Jesus, as well, you know, we note that he spoke in Aramaic. And guess what? In Aramaic, Peter's name uh, for stone is Kephas. And Aramaic actually doesn't distinguish between masculine and feminine, so Kephas is Kephas, in which case Jesus could be saying that he'll build his church on Peter, but again, it doesn't say anything about uh, popery or anything like this. It, it, that's just, you, you have to stretch the text. I think it's summed up best by Dr. Craig Keener, noted biblical scholar. This promise is made to Peter because Peter was the one who confessed Jesus. The point is that Peter is the rock in his role as confessor, and others build on the foundation by their proclamation of the same confession. The church is being built by the apostles and the gospel, not papalism and things that developed hundreds of years later. Now, in all of this discussion, let's be reminded that Peter is not on center stage. We'll close with the last verse and the point on your outline of the providential control of the Christ. We've seen Peter's confession of the Christ. We've seen people's confusion of the Christ. And now, with this last verse in front of us, we see the providential control of the Christ. Verse 20, he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. And this is kind of weird, right? You know, Jesus is like, hey, don't tell anybody. Aren't we supposed to go and tell everybody? Proclaiming on the rooftops, you know? We got songs about go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Jesus takes the record, don't tell anyone. Well, why? Because the opposition was mounting. And if they're not careful, Jesus' ministry would have been ended within days. We see this, we see what happened on Palm Sunday and how quickly they were able to get him on the cross by Friday. The thing, Jesus' life is on the line. The kingdom was rejected, and now the king is training his disciples for the kingdom that will come in the future. And he wants to train them for what needs to be done in the meantime. He needs to maximize every second that he has with them, and with every second that he has, Jesus is drilling the gospel into them and drilling confidence in them so that they can face suffering and darkness. The work was ultimately his. The fact, the fact in this verse, that, that's what shows you the providence, that he goes, no, 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 don't go tell everyone. You go, but, but that's, that's how you start a movement. You go tell people. No, I, I have it under control. I, I'll start it when I start it. You guys keep quiet now. I'm in control of the whole thing. Now this brings us to the conclusion of today's message, the believer and the witness. We've seen the building of, the, of, of worship in 1 Peter. We've seen the builder at work in Matthew 16. We began the message with Peter, uh, his, his writings, and then we journeyed to Caesarea Philippi, and we saw Peter in the, in the face of Jesus in this very dark city, and, and, and Jesus says, who, who are you? We, 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 we saw the point about Christ's identity and the call to see Christ for who he is. I, I called you to come to him. I noted confusion in our culture that people use the word Jesus and the word God in different ways and they miss him. We saw in the passage, who do, who do the people say I am? Oh, maybe you're Elijah, maybe you're Jeremiah. I don't, you see the confusion, but you hear proclaimed to you loud and clear, there is one God. There is one, there is one mediator between God and man. Man, Christ Jesus, the eternal Son in the flesh. See Christ's identity. Uh, further, for those who are in him, see, see and serve in Christ's institution. Jesus spoke of building his church. Uh, and, 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 and these living stones, Peter, Peter would go on and teach the church. You see, Christ said, I will build my church. His life, his death, his resurrection, the sending of the Spirit, the church was born. And then you see Peter taking that imagery of, of building and rock and all of it, and he's using it to, to say to a discouraged, divided, beat-down people, hey, look, he's in control. And you know the story. You know the story. Jesus trains these disciples, and these disciples go and make disciples. The apostles spread around the earth. The, the office of apostleship ceases with them. There's not a succession in terms of that office, but the apostolic succession is in the church, the true church. Whose, whose foundation is on Christ, the cornerstone. Recall in verse 18, Hades is not going to win. Death will not claim us. We will rise when the King comes. We will go to the glorious city of Jerusalem. 
Recall the gods of the rocks and the hills of Philippi. Yeah, they are dead. Guess what? That city is in ruins. But the city of God is spreading over the entire world. And the church of Christ, little local congregations, God is using, just as he used those little feeble men, he is using us to invite the lost for the kingdom that is to come. And while we, while we wait, we do not wait because there is works to do. We have gates to crush. We have darkness to push back. Let us walk in this victory and do so by giving up everything. That invitation that we saw, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And this brings me to the final point on the outline, submitting to Christ's invitation and intention. In the Bible, Jesus spoke of, of carrying that cross. He gave us that, that, that image of sacrifice and submission. The call of the gospel is a call to submit to God, to run from sin and repentance, and, and to come to Him in faith and trust in this perfect sacrifice that was given for us, the risen Lord who, who's conquered all for us. And in light of Him being the living God, and in light of Him coming to die for us, it is only appropriate that we respond to Him in submission. And we submit ourselves to His intention, His will. We're not waiting on an inner voice or a sign or any other precondition like if this happens, then I'll serve you. Or if that happens, then I'll give my life for you. No, it begins here today. There's no ifs, there's no ands, there's no buts, there's no waiting. To not decide is to decide. You leave here today committing afresh to His will or you leave here today falling on deaf ear. Our sister Corrie Tim Boone, who rescued Jews in the Nazi Holocaust. She shared the gospel. She gave her life for the gospel, risking her life, getting herself thrown into prison. And once Corey Tim Boone wrote, and I quote, there are no ifs in God's world and no places that are safer than other places. The center of his will is our only safety. Let us pray that we may always know it, end quote. Caesarea Philippi was not safe. That was not a safe place to be. Holy people don't go in there. But the Lamb of God went in there. And Christ beckoned his disciples to build his church. And today we continue that work. And we continue that work because he is worthy to be worshipped. So now we respond to his word in worship. And I'll invite you, after I close in prayer, come forward and have communion. Remember the one broken for you. Remember the one who bled out for you. Remember that gift that was done for you. And it's, as Ian leads us in song, we, we cry out to him and we sing to him because he is worthy of all that he has done. And we find encouragement in his word this day. He's going to build this church. He's, he's sovereign over the church. He, he is at work, Del Rey. He's at work. And so let us go. Let us proclaim him. But first, let us come in repentance and faith and worship him. Come, let us adore him. Father, we thank you for the sending of your son. We thank you for the table that is before us that reminds us of his great work. We come now, Lord, we, we offer our offerings unto you. We offer our lives to you, our prayers to you, our relationships to you, our dreams to you. Lord, we confess that we baptize our dreams uh, and, and, and tr try to rationalize them to do what we want to do. Lord, I, I'm prone to wander myself easy to be discouraged. And Lord, to hear, to hear you in your word today, loud and clear, that you are in control, that you are worthy of, of suffering, that your church will go on. Lord, your, your victory has, has already been ordained. You have, you have already bound and, and loosed what is to occur. So Lord, may we find great comfort here in that. And as we come to the table, may you be glorified in it through us as we respond in repentance and faith this day. In Christ's name, amen.